0: Hello and welcome to the Jackcast, the Swansea City podcast. I'm Gyt Ollwelen and with me as always we have Steve Carroll and Matt Baroku. Evening boys. Evening. Evening. We have got a packed pod to uh, give you tonight uh, which will cover our season review, looking back at uh, everything that's gone on with the Swans over the past nine months and how we feel about the season that's just gone. We'll have a quick discussion about the club's uh, finances uh, and off the field matters. Just, uh, since the swiss ramble twitter uh, thread the other day caused quite a bit of debate online about that so we think we should touch on it um but then we will at the end of the podcast move on to discuss wales because it is one of the biggest weeks in the history of welsh football wales have a playoff against either scotland or ukraine to decide whether or not they will be going to their first world cup since 1958 which is clearly feeling like a bigger and bigger match uh, with every passing day. So we will discuss that in depth at the end of the podcast. But before that, let's look back at what has been quite a strange season. I think it's fair to say, Steve, at uh, Swansea City. Um, Let's go back to the beginning. We'll do it chronologically. uh, Back to about two weeks before the season started, when uh, we had a last minute change of manager uh, just two weeks before the season started Steve Cooper left and about a week after that we had Russell Martin arrive and uh, introduce a totally new culture to the club I think it's fair to say that wasn't the ideal preparation for a for a new season was it?
1: No, I don't think it was, um, you know we did say at the time didn't we that we the resolution should have been quicker and um, you know I, I don't think that's uh, that's changed really, is it uh, in the time since it put us really on the back foot, didn't it, to start the season? And um, you know, I don't think it was a surprise that we we started slowly, was it? No,
0: it probably wasn't. And we and we did, of course, um have that opening take here at Ewood Park, which we lost two one, but I think that scoreline flattered us really because um Blackburn could have scored four, five, six, seven, eight to anything really, um the amount of chances that we gave to them. Um, I mean, Matt, looking back to that period from say Cooper's departure to the end of the transfer window, it was it was such a hectic period. How how do you look back at that time now, both on and off the pitch, with, with the benefit of hindsight?
2: Well we as we said at the time, this is um we we didn't really know how to how how to expect Russell Martin's approach, I think, going into that Blackburn game. Um we were talking um just before the game and we thought well this could be a a transitional couple of months russell martin where he goes do you know what we're gonna play as you were last season and as i see it as you say it was about four days before the season started or something he took over wasn't it so he didn't have any time at all with the players um so is he gonna play the same way same ethos same style of play and then go as i see it then i'm going to make little tweaks or is he going to go the other way and go you know what from day 1 this is what we do use your tactics board when you get it in this position this is we're going to try and do it in fact it looked a lot more like the latter like he just chucked this in and went you know i'm going to go from day 1 here and we're going to start exactly as we mean to go on um no no building up to it at all um which resulted in some interesting moments at Ewood Park i think because <laughs> we had um We had a couple of instances where uh, Stephen Bender was probably the fourth or fifth furthest man back. He was uh, pretty much up the halfway line and Latabaudier had a shot against him after a few minutes, I think. Uh, So we had a a few uh, hairy moments, but you could see from that game onwards that this was going to be, right, we're just going to go for it. We're just going to go and learn as we go. Um, And I think, by and large, the fan base has, or certainly was at that time, buying into it. I think we were very much in a case. So well, um, obviously, Steve Cooper divided opinion. Um, results over performances. Take your pick, whatever one you prefer. Um, but he, uh, when when we talked about getting back to the style of play that we we, we'd become accustomed to over the last 10-15 years Russell Martin embodied that and so we thought well okay do you know what we'll give him time and whenever you know a result went against us or perhaps we thought "Mm, you know what that didn't the performance wasn't quite there it was it's easy and 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 quite fitting to go back to look we we joined so late it was a mess we managed it extremely poorly um it should have been done you know, just after the playoff final, really, after we the what we heard about afterwards. Um it should have been done and dusted right there and then. It wasn't, and that's all gone now. But uh we we use the word transition a lot this season and I think very early on that was the word that was the buzzword of the club really.
0: It's been that way all season really, hasn't it Steve? Um it's just felt like one long transition. I guess It took, everything's taken a bit of time. And I guess looking back to those opening months, for me, there were two big turning points in those opening weeks. One of them was our first win of the season, away against Bristol City. Um, Joe Pirro scoring to make it 1-0. Everybody who was in the away end that night just says what a crazy, crazy night it was. And, And it just kind of eased the pressure after three games without a win to start off the season, but got us on the... Kind of gave us that winning feeling, uh, and the other one for me was the three all away at Luton, where the first half was was just diabolical and uh, up there among the worst halves of football that we've seen this season. And there have been some, there have been some shockers, I think it's fair to say. But then that second half comeback to make it three all, the the atmosphere, that the improbability of it all, some of the football that we played, it just for me those two games just gave us the belief that actually this squad is capable of doing what Russell Martin wants it to do, and it is capable of of getting, you know, um, of, of defying the odds, I guess, playing that kind of football.
1: Yeah, I think, obviously, early doors, you just need to get a win on the board, don't you, really? Um, you know, even if you don't play particularly well, because I know Martin himself wasn't very happy with the, the Bristol City performance, but, you know, we just needed that win, don't you? You need to be off and running, it just lifts that pressure a bit. Um, and that was the big thing Well, as, as you say, it was definitely one of the standout moments of the season, it was one of the great away days, one of the best atmospheres I've been in on the road, so yeah, that's something I think everyone who was who was there will remember for a long time uh, the, the Luton one's probably more of a turning point for me, I would say, because like I said, we were three down at the break, two aside that we we probably like to think we, we were going to finish higher than and obviously at that point I think it may have been seven games in, may, maybe eight and obviously there was only that one win on the board you're thinking you're three down at half time, this isn't looking good yeah. You know, the knives were out a little bit and obviously I'm sure social media was probably the same, but then to come back, show great character and, you know, to, to get three goals because at that point as well, let's be realistic, we were not scoring many goals, were we? And that was probably one of the big criticisms. So to get three on the board was, was a big deal, I would say. And I do genuinely think another couple of minutes we might have won that game, which would have been a astonishing really to come from three down to win. So yeah, I think that did give everyone a bit more belief, as if to say, "Look, this—you do have to be patient. There'll be there'll be good and bad moments." And you know, we saw what was a, essentially a crazy game there at uh, at Kenilworth Road—one that, you know, I, I can't—well, uh, it's the first time game I'd ever been to where we've been three down and come back to three uh, all. So that probably says a lot, considering I've had a season to ticket for twenty-five years. So, yeah, I think that was you know quite a big turning point looking back. And then. I think the game after that we did go to um to Huddersfield and win so oh sorry we, we, we beat Huddersfield yeah. home so you know that we were off and running a little bit then and the results had picked up and you know like I said we you know that that game was a big turning point I would say
0: yeah, of course, that wouldn't be the first time that we saw a uh, a 3-0 lead squandered uh, this season, unfortunately. Uh, the only time that we were on the right end of uh, of that comeback. Um, Matt, I think looking back at the season, there have been some, you know, there have been two clear kind of really sparkling um, periods in the season. One of them came in, in the spring, but the first one came back in. October, start of November. Um, I mean, the, the 3-0 win against Cardiff was one of the results of the season. Followed that up with a 2-1 win against uh, West Brom. A uh, couple of um, couple of weeks later, the 3-0 against Peterborough, and then beating Coventry away. I mean, did we get a bit carried away with that um, period, do you think? Um, or, or do you think actually that was kind of a sign of things to come?
2: Um I think logic would would say we we expect this to build up to a moment where you can put a run of performances and um get a level of consistency joe that word is probably word we haven't we haven't probably used as much as we should have this season which is is our big sticking point is any sort of consistency we've had performances where you think do you know what we're actually racking up you know a good number of clean sheets and then we can see the goal, and then all of a sudden we're picking the ball out of the net for the fourth time in 20 minutes. It's just bonkers. We don't have any sort of logic or or kind of anything you can... You, you wouldn't want to bet on the Swans. You just have no idea what's going to happen, because it's just complete lunacy when you're watching us this season. Um, so, yeah, I think we would have thought that back in October, I think we all looked at each other, didn't we? And we said, oh, this has clicked. This has clicked really well, and it's clicked a lot sooner than I thought. So... Yeah, we got carried away. We did. And I think, in truth, the game, I believe, that ended it was Bournemouth away. And had we got the decision we should have had, or a couple of decisions we should have had early doors in that game, that could have, that may have carried us on again, you know. Um, in terms of um, carrying on that run, uh, the, the wheels came off then, didn't it? It, it was uh, it ended up being a little bit of an embarrassing scoreline, an unjust scoreline, I think. But um when we when we couldn't kick pick ourselves back up from that then we went on probably the most dismal run of the season um between then and what well, when was it was it february time you know it was a it was a good chunk of the season where we were just we really looked we obviously had the um the patterson saga as well in uh in in january which we had to contend with um so in all that time going from a C team when you thought we've clicked you we you know we we're looking like we can push up towards the playoffs and really see where we can go from here because the football was delightful as well to suddenly saying well thank god we got those wins on the board we, we're still we're still heads above water in terms of the getting dragged into any sort of relegation talk at this moment but i don't think any of us were like put money down and say this won't happen during the season. But we we were kind of thinking we've just about done enough to keep our heads away from that. It's mad how we've gone from those two conversations and we're not even two thirds away through the season at this point. So, yeah, I go back to what I was saying a couple of minutes ago. Just consistency is something that we've lacked throughout the season and is going to be the big thing going forward into next.
0: Do you know what? The, the conversation we've had so far, it's just been up and down, up and down. And it's mad to think with so many ups and downs that actually our league position, I mean, we were never, we never really felt in, in serious threat of relegation and we never ever looked like, you know, seriously challenging for the playoffs. It's mad that we were so, so fixed in mid-table when we've had such an up and down season really. Um, but yeah, Steve, I mean, Matt touched on it there. I, I mean, we we had a, a pretty, you know, uh, insipid win away against Barnsley um, 2-0 at the end of November. But then... We went on, a, I think, a ten run, a ten game run. Then after that, where we had one win in all competitions um, between the end of November and the start of February, and it was just, I don't know, it was just a really miserable winter um, between the COVID break and a difficult transfer window. Results weren't really coming. Patterson, uh, the Patterson saga left us, you know, really short of creativity um, after we came back from that break. It just. I don't know, I just didn't feel like a, a great time for me, the winter of 2021-22. Um, no, I,
1: I agree with that, really. As you say, we had that win at Barnsley where we were very comfortable, but we didn't create a lot. And then, you know, there were a few games after that that didn't go so well. I think we lost the Reddin, didn't we? Which, in a game, we should really have won. Now defeat at Middlesbrough. We, we got a spank in from Forest, but deep down, we mean, we, in the first half, we were actually the better side in that game. So that was a game that I would say we probably didn't deserve to lose 4-1, but obviously then we didn't play for over a month to be in the league because of the the enforced COVID break, so yeah, I mean we, we played well second half at Huddersfield, that's one game I do remember where we did show something, but I mean it, it wasn't a great spell, was it? As you say, Patterson didn't play around that time and you just felt that we weren't creating a lot and obviously we weren't scoring a lot and it was um, a hard watch really and then as you say, but the start of February then is when Paterson did come back into the team. He set up um, Michael Orbafermi for the winner against Blackburn, and you know we were better after that. And Obafemi in particular was a real star man from that moment going forward, really wasn't he? And that made you know a big difference. We made that shift, and we have Perot playing more as a ten than as a striker. And you'd have to say that that did seem to help us out in terms of. Uh, being more creative and, and scoring more goals really because that was a weakness for the team before that.
0: And uh, Matt, towards the end of the season, I mean, talking about goals, it went a bit goal crazy really, you know, starting off with a 3-2 win away at Peterborough, which I don't think was a great performance, but it was, uh, you know, a dramatic uh, comeback, I guess, at the end of the game to, to snatch it. Um, but from then on, I mean, you know, we went on a a, a you know, really entertaining run for a brief period uh, where the goals were flying in at both ends, really. Um, we got a couple of wins, got quite a lot of draws, didn't lose many until the final two games of the season. Um, and yeah, how do you look back at that spell now? And, you know, are there any kind of signs from that spell that, that can give us a cause for encouragement going forward?
2: Yeah. Um... Because I think what what we saw was when we were playing a fluid attacking game, it was our defensive game that suffered. Um, we were able to, throughout periods of the season, grind out nil-nils or, or one-nils, whatever they may be, um, in patches of the season. And in those games, you were thinking we could go and get a second and third year and make it more comfortable. But it was never the case. And... Likewise, when we went and scored three goals and you're thinking, right, OK, that's that's great. Now we've we've got a healthy lead. That um, We couldn't keep it tight at the other end. And I think it's the pieces of the puzzle are there. We've, we can defend. I mean, the number of clean sheets we've got this season, I haven't got a hand, but the number of clean sheets we've got this season suggests we can defend and And the goals we started scoring in the second half of the season, particularly when Perot moved, as Steve just mentioned, into the hall and allowed over Fermi to stretch defenses with his pace, was 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 brilliant. It was great to see. we all we looked so much so so much more enigmatic going forward and kind of unpredictable in terms of an attacking force. So we've had our criticisms of being a bit uh, stagnant and a bit predictable in how we were doing things especially when we were relying so heavily on Perot and Patterson in the first half of the season, over Fermi, give us a new dimension. So it can give us a little bit more to work with going forward. And we need to readdress what we were doing before that at the back. I think the pieces are there in general, but it's fitting them in together into the same performance, which I'll be honest, I don't think there's really been a moment this season where, We've managed it and I will include in that, I guess, I will include in that Cardiff away. Um, it's easy to say when we were there, absolutely um, bouncing up and down in the stands and, and couldn't believe our luck. But there were a few chances in that game where they headed just wide or they missed the sitter, down. And, and I just think earlier in the season, we snuff out those opportunities. But when we score goals, we seem susceptible to conceding. So is a lot of work on for Russell Martin this summer. It's going to be personnel and tactical, and he's got to try and fit those pieces and try and make a team that can, um, well, achieve what every team wants to really, score freely at one end and be miserly at the other. You know, we do that and we go in places.
0: Right, it's... um... I don't know how long we've been recording now, but it's taken this long for Matt to mention the um, the derby away. At, uh, at <laughs> if so I think we can, right, a quick show of hands here. I think we're all in agreement. Um, the moment of the season, that, that second derby of the season, yeah, we all in agreement? Has to be. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, let's face it, when we look back at this season... I'll ask you in a bit, like, how will we remember this season? But the main th- the main moment that stands out for me is is that 4-0 away win at Cardiff. I mean, you know, it's very rare to win 4-0 away against anybody. To do it away at the home of your biggest rivals when they were actually favourites to win that game as well and to do it in the way that we did it and to seal a double. In, I mean, just days don't get more perfect than that. They really don't. I mean... Yeah, I mean, we, I, Steve, it, we'll never get a better visit to the Cardiff City Stadium than that, will we? At least not as not as club supporters.
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't think we'll ever get a better day at uh, Cardiff Scrum than that. I mean, how, how can it ever get better? Um, you know, I suppose if we had a last minute winner, would would that be better? I, I don't know. I'd like to find out. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was quite a relaxing one as well. I mean, you know, score early. I never felt we were under a great deal of pressure, and then as soon as the second goal goes in, you're, you're quite relaxed. And know, obviously, in the games after that, we did surrender a couple of three-goal leads, so maybe if we'd done that before, we might have still been on a bit of edge, but, you know, we, it was a, a great performance, and you know, it's, it's something that will be talked about forever, I would have thought, how we, we did the dube, um, and we did it in style, by causing mass humiliation to our arch rivals, who most of them had long since left the ground by the time that the the fourth one had gone in. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I'd, we've all been lucky down the years I and mean, there's been so many great moments following the Swans, but I'm not sure if there's been a more satisfying one, I'll be honest. Wow, that that
0: is some claim to make. Um, I mean, Matt, how long are we going to be... How long are the bragging rights from that match going to last, do you think? is Is this a case of you know, whatever Cardiff do next season, we've still got superiority because of what happened that afternoon. Unless, of course, they go and, and beat it by winning 5-0 or something next season, which Touchwood is pretty unlikely looking at um, uh, looking at their squad that day. For me, it's done, mate. I think you only get to do the double
2: first once. And I think, like, I, we were talking on the way back, saying, well, how do you better it? And You don't better it, but you can continue to rub the salt in the wound by having a period now of utter dominance, doing the double again next season, you know, really embarrassing them. So it just becomes a non-event in terms of competitiveness, you know, a derby almost to where they're going to end up regularly finishing the game with ten nine men because they can't get near us apart from kicking us off the ball, you know, and that sort of dominance. But in terms of how you go and, better it or risk losing it, I don't think you do because you, you've you only the, the big thing that was always hanging over the two clubs um, was it had never been done, not no one's done it in 15 years not we haven't done it yet, no not, neither team had, had ever done it so look we hope they never get to do it but if they did do it, I don't think it matched what we've done it was it was the the first and the first is only ever happening once, so and the manner i mean you've both mentioned it already but the manner in which you achieved the first it's i'm trying to think which pundit it was was it was it roy Keane that said on sky a couple of years ago when he was just furious about players not tracking and, and 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 kicking he said just kick someone just because i want to kick you just because i want you know just get something in the game and and, and feel like you are trying to impose yourself even if you can't match them technically wise, just try and show the fans that you're you're giving it. And 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 I think the fact that we, the manner in which we won the game was the total humiliation. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I can't see it. I can't envision a situation where it could be claimed that something was more so than anything. Only way, possibly, is if it were to happen in a playoff final, God forbid. But that aside, I think we're done.
0: It's just beautiful. I mean, that that's the moment of the season. I think we're all in agreement about that. But looking more generally at the season. Steve, how do you think we will look at this season in years to come? When we look back in five, ten years time, how will we view
1: this campaign? To be honest, I think it depends on what happens next season, as opposed to, you know, will it be remembered as a season of transition that led to better things or you know, a bit of a, a false dawn where we decided to go back down this route and it ultimately maybe wasn't successful or if maybe it's going to take longer than maybe a year or so to, to get into the position that maybe we want to. I I, I really do think it's, it's very up in the air at the moment. I do think if we could keep everybody together and add three or four first team players particularly, then you could be, feel quite confident about the future and that this season would have been, you know, the... The start of of an improvement um, certainly the return of the Swansea way but we don't know do you? I mean the fact is I'm sure we'll go on to talk about it with, with the finances that people are going to probably end up leaving and you know, recruitment will then you know dictate you know what happens next season but it, it does feel like there's some building blocks have been put in place but I think ultimately what happens next will will decide really how we remember this season, which is quite rare because I think a lot of the other ones where you would probably give an answer, a definitive answer in of how we would remember a season. But I do think this one, with it being a transitional one, and we're not sure what will happen after it, I think what what, the, what is to come over the next 12 to 24 months will tell us ultimately how we, we view this season, whether it was a success or not.
0: How, how do you measure it compared to your expectations before the season began? Um, I think I predicted 16th, so
1: is it 14th we finished in the end or something like that? So it may have even been 15th actually. So obviously I was very close in terms of that. I think the one I find a bit frustrating really is that I, I feel like we haven't cut out some of the mistakes that we maybe have made earlier in the season. Like if you look at that Reading game where we drew four all, I mean, we really shouldn't have been surrendering that one. And you can point at the Bournemouth one as well. I, I get that one a little bit more because they were a team pushing for promotion and obviously they were going to keep having to go with us and they obviously they're a good side whereas Reading are not but it did feel a bit like there were you know we 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 weren't making as much progress as maybe I, I would have liked and I think the sort of the frustrating thing in some ways around that October time where we had the four wins in five it felt like we'd made, we made more progress than we thought and that maybe we were going to do better than initially expected but then we didn't so I think Ultimately we probably haven't maybe progressed as much as I would have liked if I'm honest. But you know, it was always going to be a transitional season. I don't think we're you know, I still think we're on the right track, but I do think there are certain things that we've not been so good at. And, you know, I think the, the goalkeeper, for example, does give me the difference going forward. So you know, um I think time will tell, but I think probably for a lot of people we haven't maybe done quite as well as we would have liked it. I mean, I know we had that good run at the end of the season before losing the last two. But if you look at it another way, I think we didn't win any of the last six because the others, the other four were drawn. So, you know, it it depends how you look at it with stats really sometimes, doesn't
0: it? Yeah. And uh, you were right. We did finish 15th. um, So 68 points, um, scored 58 goals, conceded 68. Um, But we did finish top of the possession table, which is, of course, the most important table of all. Uh, Matt, to what extent, in your opinion, is this season a success or a failure?
2: Um, go can I cop out to this one because only because I don't think this season, uh, I think we all had agreement at the start that it wasn't going to be a success or failure, um, measured in those terms, if you like, it was going to be how it stands us up for next season, and that's a real cop out answer, but. Um, we time will only only time will tell how much Russell Martin has learned. I've got massive question marks about how much he learned through the season, because, as Steve said, we didn't cut out the mistakes that were happening on a weekly basis, and it felt like you know groundhog day a lot of the time. Um, but what we can see is a very clear, defined way of what he wants to do. Whether I like it or loathe it, apparently we are going to play one twos between our goalkeeper and our center back coming up to 30 yards outside of his goal that apparently is what he wants to do um the value of it look i'm not a football manager but next season with the right personnel and a summer of on the training ground of fairwood whatever and trying to make sure that it we know exactly what position a player is going to and we're going to actually use that to our advantage because we're going to have an extra man on the field then etc etc as the theory goes. Um, if that all comes to fruition next season that's brilliant that has to work next season because any grace any put off and anything like we can look back on those results that we threw away that Steve mentioned and the dips and tr- peaks and troughs in the form through the season, all that put down to luck. He joined towards the end of the summer. It was really uncomfortable. We had to do with the squad we got. That all right kind of goes out the window this summer. And now next season, we start afresh. So an answer to your question is not really an answer, is, is going to be Uh, The proof is going to have to be in the pudding um, from the end of July, I guess.
0: My God, that was a long cop out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it was. Before we wrap this up, um, I just want to ask the two of you for your players of the season. um, Just uh, one player. You can't name anybody else. I just want to hear one player from both of you that you
1: can categorically say is your player of the season. Steve, you go first. Uh, It's funny because I named somebody else in the uh, fanzine, but I'm going to have to say Perot now because... Be, um, over the last month, he stepped it up to the point where it has to be him, I think. So, yeah, Perot.
2: Matt? Yeah, yeah. I, I I think he's just incredible player and, and fantastic talent. So um, I'm not allowed to mention anyone else. So Perot was my vote.
0: Yeah, I would have said a couple of weeks ago that there were like six different players who could have won it. But by the end, I think Peru was the, the clear winner. I mean, To score the goals that he has, the variety of goals, very few of them tap ins, some of the best finishing and some of the best striking of the ball in the championship. Uh, What a player he is, and we've had the pleasure of um, of watching him this season, and he has been one of the consist. He's one. He's actually been one of the most consistent factors in this season. You know, in this season full of inconsistencies, he has. You know, had very few dips and and has generally played well throughout the uh, throughout the campaign and um, you know has has kept his scoring pretty consistent through the campaign as well and um, has really shown his quality and shown what a fantastic purchase he was for what was it a little over a million pounds back uh, at the uh, uh, back last summer and. Um, Steve, judging by um, the um, very detailed analysis of our finances by the Swiss Ramble podcast this week on Twitter, um, it's quite um, it's quite possible that we're going to be uh, well, we're going to be hoping, I guess, that uh, we'll get far more than what we paid for Peru in return this season, possibly to um, to, to uh, make up for losses because, um, well, you know, we'll discuss it now, I guess. The we, the accounts came back out a couple of weeks back. And um, I think if you're not uh, an accountant or, you know, but business minded, they can be quite overwhelming, these kind of accounts. So it's great to have accounts like the Swiss Ramble who break it down. And what they have shown is, what was it I think, a four million pound uh, loss um, over the financial year uh, 2000 and uh, t- I think 2000 to 2001 they cover isn't it um, and that loss uh, is you know quite startling on the face of it but pretty reasonable compared to the other clubs in the train wreck that is the uh, the championship. Um, I mean for me the, the, the takeaway from it again was that you know we, we we've we're running at a loss, not as much of a loss as, as other, cl- other other clubs in the Championship, but we're not in a position where we can go out and spend whatever we like, and probably if we are going to bring in new players this summer, we're going to have to sell at least one or two anyway, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we are. I mean, realistically when you come out of the Premier League, you know that the wage bill will have to drop over a period of time if you can't get in there. Obviously the parachutes have now uh, ran out, than not they, last summer, and You know, I think to be fair to the Swans, you can never predict a global pandemic where you know you're going to be starved of income from gate receipts and stuff like that. So, you know, a a loss was fairly inevitable, wasn't it? It's hard to be too critical in in those situations, really, isn't it? Um, But you know what we saw really was if we didn't sell Joe um, Joe Roden, the loss would have been significantly higher. And you know, you I think there was the there was the comment, wasn't there, from the I can't remember what it exactly was they said now I'm looking for it it says the operating loss worsened from three thirteen million to seventeen million this is one of the better performances in the championship um, and then there was I can't remember where the exact one is now but it says about uh, the auditors noted this represents a material uncertainty which may cast significant doubt about the club's ability to continue as a going concern so that really says it all doesn't it in terms of um, you know we've got to be realistic. The, the books need balancing, so we do have to sell again. I mean, we don't want to go down the derby route, do we? And then end up, you know, your your club is, you know, existence is under threat when, you know, when they I know they've been relegated this season, but it doesn't really even feel like a big deal because of the situation that they've ended up in. So, like realistically, Perot we have to hope there's a good offer and when we take it. I don't take any pleasure saying it because he's been brilliant for us, and I'm sure he would be again next season, but. That's the reality of the the situation that we're in. We need to, you know, try and um, get our finances under control. And, you know, the, the best thing that we can do is to try and keep bringing in players who, you know, do have resale value. We can improve them. And then, if we can cash in on them, then then so be it and try and then reinvest the money if we can. I mean, Brentford were experts at it, weren't they? In the end, they sold Ollie Watkins and Said Ben Rama for huge money, managed to spend a fair bit on Ivan Toney, brought one to us, and then. Ended up was was what took them up. So that's the way that we really need to go now. We've got to be clever in the the transfer market, and and then if if good offers come in for players, we've got to realistically accept them. Unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I mean Matt, I'm um, just looking cl- more closely at the figures. here, Swans had the 15th biggest losses in the Championship. Biggest ones: Bristol City with 38 million pounds, Reading lost 36 million, Middlesbrough 31. You know, there's some um, huge losses there um compared to our 4.6 million um these accounts didn't really take into account derby's figures um because they've not been um they've not been publishing their figures for the last few years for obvious reasons um so i mean we're not alone in these kind of losses um but if you know the the championship is a mess and we, we probably Despite not, we we probably wouldn't want to, you know, justify a loss by comparing it to others. But the the fact that, you know, the fact is that that's what everybody in the championship is doing. And when you do compare it to others, it's um it it's not too terrible. But um, like Steve said, there it's it's yet more proof that um, if we are going to um, make a success of this situation, then it's it's going to be by selling on players and and spending that the money from that um from the that sale wisely then i think the concern
2: yeah you're absolutely right i think the concern with us is the sustainability of those losses I mean, you look up teams like stalker got like 250 million pound debt or something obscene like that but of course you know they they own bet 365 so they 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 kind of bankroll the Stoke City project as long as they want to that plaything um and have that kind of background of uh, affordability. Whereas with us we've got no we've got no money, men. We've got no one who's going to save us from oblivion. as we've seen on numerous deadline days whereby it goes, right, we're out we're in the we're massively in the red here. So can we get through? No, you get rid of everyone until we're not in the red anymore for this so we can function and operate. So in terms of our situation, it does look a little bit more ropey than some of the others on the list. purely because we've got no get out of jail free card. Um and that and that is that is an ongoing issue. I think there was a uh, an auditor's note on our accounts saying that um we do potentially face, you know, difficulties in and continue to um operate should we not should we not sell joel pierrot this summer uh, we can't just carry on regardless it is a case of he has to go or certainly someone of a big one of our big assets has to go just to keep our heads above water so it's it's a concern i think what we've let ourselves down on in the past is either making it too publicly available that we have to sell to continue which okay this is another in instance of that now through um these these accounts. but um where before we could say now, nah. uh, other clubs can turn around a corner, no, okay, if you're not gonna you know if you're not. If you're not going to put up a good offer for Joe Allen, Joe Allen will stay with us in the championship. So he did with Stoke and, and, and you know, on, on the wages he was on, he stayed with them since they got relegated. So you're thinking, right, okay, they can afford to sustain those wages even this long after relegation. Now, we couldn't do that. We had to have that fire sale on relegation just to keep our heads above water. And, and what happens as a result of that then is other teams know you have to sell. So they start lowballing. So it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle because you never really get into a position um, we need to do a, what Brentford did. I absolutely understand that we need to start bringing in the untapped talent, You like your Flynn Downs, who was out of favor at Ipswich and had those issues there, came in now and he looks like he's 10 times the value he was. Joel Pirro, an ex director of the Swans, made some very interesting comments on him. I was signing, likened him to Eden Newhouse. Um, and now look at him we're talking 15 20 million hopefully for him but it needs to be the value that suits the club you, you know it, 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 otherwise we're never going to get into a position where we can grow and 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 the, and, the, and we're just going to constantly be having to hit these jackpots every summer and if we are going to sell them off on you know for half the value that they're worth then um we're never going to get into a position where we can emulate the Brentford model. Um, and we've had a lot of upheaval with the with the guys resourced with bringing in players as well. Um so with Mark Allen and Andy Scott both being in position and leaving um during the season. Now the new setup looks like Russell Martin's got his hands on the reins pretty much you know, he's pretty much got his feet feet in there now and, and he's gonna be driving it from from the manager's seat, which whether you like that or not, I am I'm not sure myself. It it just means that we are going to have to work hard this summer um, to carry on identifying whilst making sure that we don't undersell our players, which has been a recurring theme.
0: Yeah, I mean, Steve, I don't think I've ever seen a situation before where... So many Swansea fans are coming out and saying that we should sell our best player. Um, it It's a sad situation to be in because, you know, you'd, you'd want to keep hold of your best players. But I think there's a I think people are smart enough generally to to see that actually um, selling Joe Pirou may be able to may enable us to keep the likes of Flynn Downs. Um, uh Mac Rhymes, I guess, but me these kind of players who who were also potentially worth something if we were to sell them. Uh, maybe Ben Cabango falls into that category as well, possibly. Um, it's a bit sad that we have to think that way, but listen, football fans have to take account of of business um and, and you know economics as well, um, these days. So it's just realistic. But how much do you think? One, we should be asking for Pirou, and two, how much realistically do you think we can get um, with the
1: market the way it, it it has been over the last few years? Well, it's, I think since Covid, everything has changed, doesn't it? I mean, we got £20 million for Ollie McBurney, which is was obviously great business, especially given what's happened with him since. Perot is a better player than him, but he isn't going to get the type of money that we had previously because the market has just changed now. I mean... There's not many in this division now that will go for big money. I mean, I was was staggered in January when Nottingham Forest turned down 18 million for Brennan Johnson. Obviously, it's paid off handsomely now. But that's not the type of money hardly anyone can turn down. I don't think anymore. Um, I think we should be asking for 15 for Perot. We're not going to get that probably though. It would be more like about 11 or 12, um, which is still obviously based on what we bought him for is great. But I do think he is worth probably more than 15 if based on what others have gone for previously but that's the way that the market is now so um it is what it is unfortunately but you know we'll we'll see hopefully somebody will will come in and, and bid more what we think he is worth but like we said we're in a situation really where we do need to sell so when push comes to shove if we are backed into a corner on deadline day which unfortunately is our speciality, we will cave and, and take a poor offer so let's hope it gets wrapped up in the next few weeks, and then we hopefully then our our main targets that I'm sure we're interested in, they'll still be available, and then we can you know look to to rebuild.
0: I have a feeling that Pirro is not going to be a quick sale. I mean, for one thing, that there aren't many solid rumors suggesting that he's you know get, getting a lot of interest. And the more I think about it, the more I think there is. There's probably a limited number of clubs who would be interested in somebody like Pirro because of his style of play, and you know he's he's not the most athletic of players, and it says he's not got he's not got much pace. Um, he's he's pretty slow for for footballer standards, I would say. I think that's fair to say. Um, he plays quite the specialised position. I mean, he's not quite the number ten. He's not quite the striker. He's kind of in that in that middle middle place. Um, and I just th- I just fear that clubs these days that these days scouting is so so smart i mean that they they, they they the days of kind of being able to buy a meet you for two million um they're gone really you know clubs are just on they know every single player out there and they know the inside out and one thing about Piru is they will look at his stats and say everything that he's touched this season has turned to gold now that can mean one of two things either he is an absolutely world class finisher and he is just going to be scoring regularly every time he gets within 25 yards of goal or and I think this is more likely I think they're going to look at it and say is this sustainable is he going to be scoring at this rate for much longer and if we bring him to the Premier League with the step up in quality and he's never played at that level before um, you know he's not going to get as many chances is he going to be you know he needs to be scoring at something close to that rate to, to justify a price tag and I think they may be put off by looking at his goals and just thinking, do you know what, it's unsustainable. He, he, uh, we, we'd be taking too much of a risk by spending big money on this player. That's what that's one of my fears because you know it comes back to XG. I know people don't, a lot of people don't like XG, but the principle is, you know, how likely is somebody to score from that position? How much, you know, how much of a golden streak is somebody on, and how sustainable is is that really? Um, you know, um, he's not been scoring tappings, he's been scoring goals from, from long range um, for the most part and, you know, whilst that's brilliant, I'm not sure how sustainable it is, I'm not sure how sustainable scouts are going to see it um, I mean, Matt how how important do you think it is that we do get a decent price for, for Piru? and are there any options that you would consider to keep hold of him?
2: Um, well I, I'm, I'm not sure i I'm not sure I'd consider 11 million enough, if I'm honest with you, I think, you know, we'd have to really be in dire straits in terms of, right, we've got three players here now who, and we need to, we need to get over the line just to, just to give ourselves a, a, you know, because they're all going into the starting 11 and we can't do it without Piro going. that, that is the situation over the summer anyway. But in terms of that would need to be come to fruition on a deadline day situation for us to panic at that. I think I don't I personally don't think 14, 15 million is, is beyond the realms of possibility. I think Piro's a very clever striker as well. Mind, I. Don't, You know, he scored absolute worldies, don't get me wrong. Um, and a lot of them were incredible strikes, but also he has a knack of finding space and i think that isn't just about isn't just about finding the top corner from 25 yards it's also about knowing i mean you can't teach that you can't teach a striker the ability to be able to just know when to drop off and allow the defenders to keep racing towards their own goal and just wait for that ball to come back patiently um so i i it depends how much interest is already there i know that it's been very quiet on the on the swan's front and i it's never a nice sign but then at the same time i also hate it when there's rumors on every paper about us because um us doing our transfer business in public has never ended well so um i'd like to say that there were conversations going on in the background about the availability of him um it, it to me yeah uh, like i go back to what i was saying a little earlier on it's so important that if he goes, he goes for and Russell Martin has said he'll go, but he'll go on our terms, otherwise he won't go. So I mean, his sense of it is well, I know we are likely to lose this man, but we have to at least face up to other teams who will want to get him on the cheap and say, well, actually i'm I'm not interested in replacing Peru with two or three free transfers and a one million pound sign-in. I actually want to go. If I'm gonna get rid of this absolute star, I actually wanna go and buy quality to replace at the back to to replace his goals. Um so it it's it's a fine balance. I'd say we'd sell at fourteen, fourteen to fifteen. Um anything less than that would be a bit of a bitter pill to swallow.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, um our record of the last few years of selling players is no. not fantastic. So um I can't say I've got my hopes up for a, you know, a really great fee for, for Peru, But there we go. We'll have to wait and see how the rest of the uh, transfer window goes. It started off quite quietly, but um, we know with the Swans, it's, uh, it's never straightforward. I'm sure we're going to have plenty of ups and downs over the summer, and we will discuss those in good time when we have something solid to discuss. Uh, one thing very quickly we'll touch on. Um, over the last few, well, sometime in the last few weeks, uh, a story came out that a Brazilian businessman by the name of uh, Leandro Rodriguez, who nobody had heard of, um, based in Switzerland and uh, has just bought the third division club in Brazil, uh, came out and said that he was looking to um, buy uh, the Swans. Now, what got me, first of all, I looked at this story straight away and thought, this guy sounds like a chancer and it doesn't sound like it's in any way realistic and he just sounded like he was kind of trying to make himself sound like um, a big player um, um, and used, you know, a a Welsh football club to try and um, make himself sound like like a bit more of a player than he actually was. But what what got me, Steve, was how many of our fans, and, you know, it could have just been the bloody 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds on Facebook and Twitter, but so many of them said, yes, yes, fantastic news, bring him in, without knowing anything about this guy, without knowing... Absolutely anything about kind of his motives, how much money he's got, what kind of plans that he would have if this was in any way realistic. They just said, yeah, brilliant. Bring him in. What does that tell you about, I don't know, football fans in general, but like that aspect of our fan base, in your opinion?
1: That tells us that people don't like our current owners, first and foremost, which is sort of hard to, to disagree with. But at the same time, you know, be careful what you wish for you, because... But just because this lot are not very good doesn't mean the next lot are not even worse. So this is the difficult thing with it, isn't it? I mean, we don't know anything about this Brazilian bloke. I mean, whether it's it's real or not or anything like that. I wouldn't know what his intentions were. It's You've got to be very careful, I think, always if, when when the club changes hands. You just don't know what you're dealing with. Too. Um, you know, I think the current regime have obviously made a lot of mistakes. You would say that if they hadn't come in that the club, if if the old regime had continued, would we be in a better state now? I would say so, yes. I'm not saying we wouldn't have gone down at some point, but I don't think a lot of the decisions that were made would have been made. So you'd have to say that obviously they haven't been a good thing. But what I would say, I don't fear that this club is going to go to the wall on their watch. So that immediately means that they're not the worst. So that that's the problem. I mean, hardly anybody can afford to buy it realistically, and and hardly any, and even less would. Would want to buy it. So, look, it's it's a tough one, isn't it? I think, you know, into on the football inside, they're probably never going to make good decisions. They've uh, we talked earlier, didn't we, about the Cooper and Martin fiasco last summer? I mean, that was again pretty shambolic. They're probably going to make more bad decisions on the football side because that's what we've seen over the last six years. But like I said, I don't think we're going to go to the wall with these guys in charge. So they. It immediately tells me there could be worse people out there and there's no guarantee that this Brazilian bloke, whether it was legitimate or not, isn't worse. So, you know, let's let's just be realistic about this now. I mean, you've got to... I think it's very naive to think that, you know, anyone that could come in and save the day and be better than what we've got, it it doesn't necessarily work like that, I don't think.
0: Well, I, I remember when the current owners took over and there was a hefty chunk of fans who who welcomed them in with open arms without kind of questioning anything saying yeah we need investment yeah if we want to go to the next level we need new owners like without without questioning anything about how much money they had how much of that money they'd be willing to invest etc and it was only kind of over the coming weeks that when people actually did some digging they found you know actually these guys aren't super wealthy that you know they're a hedge fund being backed by many different um, individuals you know it was never going to be a kind of Abramovich situation or even Vincent Tan situation where you've got a billionaire that, that's able to just chuck cash at a club you know uh, but but then at that time you had that attitude of yeah get him in get him in straight away no questions asked we need we need somebody uh, new in and it's just this kind of short-term thinking that you see among football fans sometimes it just drives me nuts and you're thinking haven't there been enough examples of people just saying, "Yeah, whoever you are, take over our club. We'll, you know, we'll we'll take you definitely." And and it backfiring. I it's not too long ago the Wigan were taken over by some weird, uh, you know, East Asian um, company that nobody had heard of, and within a month they were in administration because they'd taken the club for a ride. You know, like people are. I, I, I like it, it. Sorry, I don't want to sound disparaging, but people are idiots when it comes to this kind of thing. When you speak like that, I mean, it just it completely invalidates any kind of opinion you've got. What, sorry. What, it's
2: about, just... what about our what about our local press in terms of that regard? I think a lot of people were in can be very easily influenced, and the amount of positive spin it was almost like who the bought and paid for the the press at that point because the amount of positive spin on that takeover from the Americans was was unbelievable it was it was as if they'd seen the books and they'd seen how fantastic and bright the future was going to be and um, a lot of people picking up a paper or logging in the next day would have seen that after I think it was after a Chelsea game or something wasn't it um, would have seen that news and thought oh there we are then Um a good thing yeah, exactly, yeah. and that, I think I think our press, and I'm not, you know, ashamed to say this or afraid to say this. I think our local press have a lot to answer for in that regard, in terms of how they presented something, which, with hindsight, as we can all say, but certainly at the time they didn't have the information to hand to say that this is a fantastic thing for Swansea City. It's turned out to be completely the other way, and so. Um, yeah, in their power, position of power, I think they were quite, uh, to be kind, I'd say lazy, but otherwise, there's other words I could use as well to, to say how they, they've led people up the garden path there a little bit. And, um, of course, their lead, because we had they had a good relationship with the previous owners, the previous shareholders, their lead certainly might have come from them um, about how great this will be, because there we go and and that's their their sale and they're happy and they've got their millions etc but of course you know how, what what does that mean for Swansea city after the fact and uh, i think um a lot of people were were led by by how the media portrayed that sale and um people are very easily influenced when it comes to uh when it comes to the media and stuff and i i i i do think they they don't necessarily take critique things themselves, you know, and that, and you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about, God, this isn't right with Wigan and and other clubs who've been taken to the wall. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of checks and balances that need to go into place for EFL and stuff like that. But media have a big say as well.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there. Just do you just treat everything with an element of caution don't get mm. swept up in it because there are so many chances and so many crooks out there who are like i'm not saying this guy in brazil is necessarily fitting into that category but we know from experience that football attracts some of the worst people on earth it, it attracts crooks. it attracts um brutes it, it's now attracting you know vicious dictators basically um you know th- it's attracting people who want to use the sport to their own uh, to, to their own ends uh, and who may actually have no idea how to run a football club, and and may not even have the the cash really to to run a football club, but they want the prestige that goes with it, or they want to exploit it for for their own for their own means in some way. Uh, and some dare I say it, like our own ones, just get involved in something they don't really understand and get in over their heads, and and you know just get into make them make enormous losses because they don't know what they're doing. Um, you know that. that the The number of owners out there who are genuinely really good at what they do and really know what they're doing, they're in the minority. The majority out there are not great at running football clubs, and they make a lot of mistakes. Um, and they're not the best business people, and they're not actually the kind of people that you want running your club. So it's I think there's a lesson to be learned in just being careful what you wish for, and Doing your due diligence and not just opening your arms and welcoming anybody who flashes a couple of quid at you. Think about this things and think about the long-term safety of a football club. And while we've been very critical on here of the owners, I don't know, about you, but I, I'm. I think you you touched on it, Steve. I'm not concerned about us going to war with them i think they're they're interested in running us sustainably and that's all i want from my owners i don't want somebody i've said it before and say it again i'm not particularly interested in getting somebody in who's going to bankroll us um who's going to be a, a kind of vincent Tan, roman abramovich just chuck money at it and um and, and try buy success that way i just want a sustainably run football club that we know is going to be around for the foreseeable future and where you know good decisions are, be, are being made, that's what I want for my ownership. Um, I don't know, should, should we want more Steve, or am I just being, you know, quite and and an ambitious in what I want for my owners and and, and demanding?
1: I think you're just being realistic. I mean, the the truth is, if you run it sustainably, then I think you'll never get a situation there where you know Mel Morris now is the great example. He did bankroll Derby. And then one day he decided, I'm not bankrolling you anymore. And then you're in the shit. And I think that's always the fear, certainly from my point of view. Maybe you're in the same situation that I'm thinking. that. Whereas if you just run self-sustainably, nobody's ever going to pull the plug on you because you've got the money to to run the club sustainably, obviously. So I think that's the thing. Don't get me wrong. I think it'd always be nice if someone came in and said, look, I'm not I'm not necessarily someone who's going to spend an absolute fortune, but if someone came in and just went a bit like, look, we will spend a little bit, I'll put a little bit of money in towards a few things and, and, and this type of thing. I think, you know, let, let's be honest. I mean, you'd have to say, like, the Stoke chairman, for example, has has been brilliant, doesn't he? He's cost himself a fortune, I know, but, you know, he has, there's there's no fear for them that he's going to pull out because he's a lifelong fan. So I think that that's probably the things that you, you want. If somebody's going to bankroll you, you just want to have that belief that. You know, they're not going to pull the plug. But, I mean, you can, you can never be certain, can we? I mean, Derby are not the only ones that has happened to. And, obviously, you look at Chelsea now. I think they were always going to get bought, So, it's probably not that much of a worry. But, at the same time, I mean, Abramovich could have, at some point, couldn't he decided to pull out, you know, under his own esteem rather than the fact that he's been effectively forced to. And then, again, you like I say, you are in the shit. So, I just think you've got to be realistic about these things. If you run yourself sustainably, then there's never really going to be the fear of... Uh, Of dire consequences because let's be honest cardiff could easily end up in that situation if tan does decide to pull the plug they're in the shit, and as much as they think they're this massive club i don't think there's a great deal of people out there that would be willing to save them before they went into administration so you know they would have a serious issue then wouldn't they
2: what i would say so to jump in here is is if the americans are going to run the club sustainably every pound going out has to be accounted for by a pound coming in that's fine um what my ongoing grievance is and it goes back to something you said earlier on Gitto is is them not knowing what they're doing and I think they needed um we've all said it on this podcast before Trevor Birch was a massive breath of fresh air. Um, he was a man that knew football. He was a man that got us good value for Dan James and Ollie McBurney. He knew exactly how the markets worked. He was very well connected, as you can see with his posts since leaving us. He's been, you know, moved on to the, to the national scale now in terms of in, w- with the EFL. Um, but in terms of um, them surrendering, if you like, and saying to someone else, look, you know, as long as the numbers make up at the end of the season, at the end of the month, at the end of the quarter, whatever, you make those decisions on the ground. And I want you to do it. And I maybe we're going to get into that next season with potentially Jake Silverstein. It looks like it's going that way, you know?
0: Yeah. And, I'd, you know, in, in terms of that, the make, making good decisions, et cetera, I do think the best thing that the uh, owners have done since they took over is actually pointed people, to run the club in their place because they d- they didn't know what they were doing trying to run a football club. So they first of all went and got Trevor Birch who did a fantastic job. Yeah, they then went and got uh, um, Julian Winter who, from what I can see, is doing a decent job. Um, I-, I agree that we should be getting more for some of the players that we've been buying and uh, that we've been selling. Sorry, uh, although I think our purchases um, last summer were, were very very good. So like, maybe it balances out in that in that respect. Um, but generally, I think he's he's doing a decent job. Um, and yeah, as with the Americans, as long as they've not got their fingerprints on the daily running of the of the show, then I'm pretty happy. If I'm being honest, if they just take a back seat, then then that's that's absolutely fine by me. Um, the the less we see of them, the better, and the more responsibility they give to people running the club um, uh, at, at grassroots level. I guess, um, yeah, the better really. Um, Okay, that's enough discussion about business and and finance and owners. Let's move on to something uh, on the pitch and something which is going to get everybody extremely excited and extremely nervous and worked up over the next week because Wales are preparing for uh, their biggest game. Um, Well, I'll ask you first, Steve, where, where does this rank? Because for me... There are some people saying that this is possibly the biggest game ever in, in Wales's football history. For me, I'm struggling to think of a bigger game that's been played on home turf um, in Cardiff than, than, than this one. This, this match against either Scotland or Ukraine for a place in the World Cup, as far as I'm concerned, it's the biggest match that I will have ever seen Wales play
1: on home soil. I do arguably think it is the biggest game ever because just for the publicity and and what it will do for the nation, if we do make a World Cup, I mean, like I know with the Euros, we did do superbly, and we got to a semi-final and stuff like that, but I think there's probably only so much more you can gain when you're getting through the knockout rounds and stuff like that, whereas I think the jump to not qualifying to qualifying is that massive, and the World Cup is the biggest sporting event for me. So, think of the money and the publicity, like I said, that it would, would bring in to the country if we could get there. I this arguably is the biggest game ever, I think, because when are we ever going to get this chance? I mean, we've we have been in positions before where we could qualify, but I mean, we've got a home tie against Scotland or Ukraine. It, you know, it looks like most of the players are available. It It's a huge chance. It feels like a massive game. And like I said, I, I can't think of a bigger one because you know the, the World Cup is is the daddy of them all. The Euros is a big deal, but the World Cup is it's the biggest thing in sport, if you ask me. Matt,
0: you know how how do the players prepare for this kind of game? Because the pressure on them, you know, they, we we haven't qualified for a World Cup since 1958. That was before my dad was even born. We all know this. Uh, we all know that there have been kind of painful memories um, in the past. You know, some of these players will ha- will still remember the Ireland match a couple of years back, which was obviously a sickening moment. Um, but but this is this is different. This is a playoff. This is you know, a, a, a game against either Scotland or Ukraine—they're playing tomorrow as we record. Um, you know, it's a winnable match. It's on home turf, um, and it's a chance to to kind of to to get to a World Cup. And for some of these players, it's it's realistically their last chance to get to a World Cup. I don't know. Do you expect them to to crack under pressure, or do you think this is the kind of team that will rise the occasion?
2: Well, we're very fortunate, uh, very fortunate to have uh, a man leading the line who has done it all and has just added to his list of accomplishments uh, a couple of days ago as well, who has played at the highest level and achieved at the highest level and can lead by example. He's not only the most decorated Welsh player, he's also the one of the most senior players as well. So he lives both roles. As I'm a fantastic talent, but also I'm one of the voices you want to hear in the changing room is going to tell you how to play with your head rather than your heart and to not get overawed by the occasion. And that's felt in in in, in that way through, you know, we talked, Steve mentioned the Euros there, I felt that way in the Euros as well. The Wales kept themselves, um, kept their cool. You know, they, they lived a very quiet, subdued, uh, you know, being, if you like, when they were out in, in France and making sure that they didn't get caught up in the hysteria and get overwhelmed and overawed by everything and just concentrated on their game. Um, and I think with with Bale in that squad, it's very much a case of, you know, let's let's look to this guy um, to, to lead by example and let him just keep our – nerves under control because without him i'd be feeling like everything you were concerned about in in that in that, that intro there was was how are you are gonna not feel it how you're not going to just buckle under the pressure of the weight of the country on your shoulders and expectation which is not something that we used to expectation and uh, being a favorite if you like or anything like that it's a very uncomfortable situation but With Gareth Bale, there I don't think we're going to have too many concerns. I really hope we won't have any concerns about players buckling under pressure because um, he he is one of the few players in world football who you would say that man has ice in his veins.
0: God, I hope you're right. And in fairness, Bale, you know, we saw he's Austria. He can, you know, just lift his game for Wales. He he keeps his best for Wales every single time. So hopefully. God, I hope you're right. Um, Steve, uh, we're recording this on Tuesday night. Wales are playing tomorrow against Poland. You may be listening to this after the game. From my point of view, I don't really care about what happens to that game as long as everybody comes through a fit and nobody picks up any kind of knocks or, or or strains or whatever that that could potentially keep them out of um Out of Sunday's game, Um, which is a shame because I'd love to take the Nations League seriously. But let's face it, there's only one game this week the Wales really need to concentrate on. And that is the game on Sunday. Um, In terms of that match, who do you want to play? Because Scotland and Ukraine are going to go head to head straight after our game uh, in Poland. Which one of those teams would you rather face in a World Cup playoff final?
1: uh i think i'd rather face ukraine if i'm honest. you. a lot of their players haven't played um since before the the winter break they had because of obviously the war breaking out and i do think that it would be such a huge ask for not just because of that but also to win two away games back to back i mean it it is a big ask i think in any situation but i think for them to do it like in the current one you just thought it would take a mammoth effort for them really to get past scotland and you'd like to think then that they might not have a lot left in the tank, so I know obviously if Ukraine do get through, the rest of the world would will be willing them to win, so <laughs> you know, I think if you take that out of it I think if you said that Ukraine were going to win, I'd, I'd be quite pleased with that, I, uh, you know obviously I doubt they'd have many fans there either whereas Scotland will obviously they, well they might not have a lot of tickets to jocks, but they're going to travel to Cardiff in their thousands as they as they always do and it would, you know, obviously our history with Scotland isn't great either, so I, I'd rather Ukraine. Famous last words, I know, but uh, I do think realistically that would be a better fixture for Wales.
0: I've seen a lot of Scottish fans already complaining about potential ticket allocation. I remember the last time they were in Cardiff uh, would have been about two thousand and what thirteen, something like that. Um, game with ten thousand, didn't they? They they did. I've I've never seen an away crowd like you in Cardiff. They were fantastic as well. The Scottish fans, they really. Were. I know a lot of Welsh fans do not. Um, do not feel too warmly about the Scots, but but I I really think they're great people and I thought their fans were amazing when they came down um, to Cardiff the last time, um, but there are going to be far fewer of them in the stadium this time around than than there were last time. Um, I mean, Matt, I've heard a lot of people make the point that Steve made there that if, if we do face Ukraine because of everything that that country has been through in the last few months, they're going to have the sympathy of the world um, on their side. They're going to have a major media spotlight on this match, and the whole world is going to be, you know, supporting them. And Wales aren't really used to being the the bad guys. Um, and I think you know we were kind of the bad guys. It, it reminds me slightly of the game against Denmark in the World Cup, where uh, in the euro, sorry, where everybody wanted Denmark to win because of Christian Eriksson, the way the country had had responded to um to, to his scare on the pitch. Um, and you know we weren't the kind of plucky underdog plucky, likable underdogs anymore. We were the potential um villains of the piece. Obviously, this would be just 10 times bigger because Ukraine is, you know, has has captured the public imagination. The country suffered so much since this invasion. So many people have been forced to flee. Um, So many people have been have been killed um, by by the uh, by the Russian army since since they invaded back at the start of the year. I mean, that brings with it a certain pressure, doesn't it? Because you you've not got that public support outside of Wales on your side.
2: Yeah, um, the, the the support is always a kind of fleeting thing. I I think it's um it's an interesting thing when we talk about it, um, how much support is actually garnered. Even when Wales were going through the Euros, it was always like I you know if you were a neutral, if you're from one of the countries not involved, you are kind of like, God, look at Wales. Where's my beat Belgium? The support was never anything like you know we didn't suddenly have half of Europe put a hanging up Welsh flags outside their house or anything like that. It was always kind of like um, they quite they didn't mind us. They quite liked us as a plucky underdog. So the, the, I think more about uh, the more the bigger thing, I guess it'll be about the um, the media for me between uh tomorrow's game and uh, and and the and the and the final if you like if ukraine do beat scotland then of course that's the story and the story is going to be ukraine it would be just it would be poetic and that is stuff that is going to filter through um no matter what you do you're going to know you're going to see that the that the media is going to be pushing this um ukraine for the world cup narrative um I watched Eurovision a couple of weeks ago, ghetto, so I know exactly how, <laughs> how people can be
0: swayed um, by, uh, are, by you a, are you suggesting there was politics involved in the decision in to in vote. Eurovision? Yeah, never. You, never. <laughs> that, that's a that, yeah. That would be a scandalous thing to accuse Eurovision of. Absolutely, yeah. I, um, I, I'll, have, I'll have you know that the whole of Europe is fanatical about you Ukrainian rap. Folk. Sing two words. Sing one line out of that
2: song. No, exactly. Uh,
0: so it's just too catchy for me to remember <laughs> this stage. Yeah,
2: I thought that much as well. Um, yeah, so basically, it's going to be uh, a narrative being pushed. Um, it would do Wales a favor on one hand if Scotland won tomorrow night, but I do kind of edge with Steve and say a Wales Scotland final doesn't fill me with any sort of excitement, just pure dread. So, um, both finals would feel me with dread, to be honest with you. But a Ukraine one, I think, if we weren't to achieve it, um, when we had a Ukraine fixture, I think we would only really have ourselves to blame. Whereas, you know. It it could be a different story if Scotland came down here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we just have to try and not pick up any newspapers for a few days if, if that's at all possible. Um, but yeah, I think uh, keeping that in mind, um, the 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 outside pressure will will come from press and TV and stuff like that. I think that's going to be unavoidable. I'm afraid.
0: Um, Steve Scotland of of had um, a real turnaround over the last few years. They've gone from being a a nothing team really on the international scene for being honest to uh, one that's really not the kind of team you want to play against these days. Um, Things just seem to have come together for them a bit like they did for us a couple of years back where they've just found a couple of good players. They've got one really world-class player in Andy Robertson um, who is one of the best left-backs in the world. But they've also got, you know, Good players running right through the team. That I really like, you know, John McGinn, for example. You know, they've got a really athletic and hard-working midfield. There, they attack with real pace. Um, you know, they've they they sco- They've found ways of scoring goals in this campaign from from all directions. Really, um, this is a couple of years back. If you would have offered me a a playoff final against Scotland, I would have bitten your hand off for it. But these days, I think they are one of the toughest teams that you could face in this kind of scenario, other than, you know, Italy and Portugal, who we could have also got in this draw. I'd I'd say that, that, you know, there wasn't much between Scotland and the other teams there. I think they're they're right up there um, after those two teams. Um, I'll be honest, I don't want to face Scotland. I think they are the kind of team that we would not like to play against. They will be in our faces. They will be high energy. They will look to counter-attack a pace in many ways, they play similarly to us, really. They they want to just take the game 100 miles an hour and, and and get the ball forward as quickly as possible and try and catch us out.
1: Yeah, they've, they've improved a lot, haven't they? I remember, um, I think it was the opening of the, the Euro qualifying. Remember we played Slovakia at home. We won 1-0 and they were playing San Marino that night. I was back in the pub watching it. But a few days earlier, they'd lost 3-0 in Kazakhstan, did not they? So, you could probably never predict that they would have improved as much as they would have at that point. Qualifying for the Euros probably seemed a long way away, and they obviously they managed to get through by beating Serbia on pens, and then, obviously they, they played quite well against England during the Euros. I thought they they had a creditable nil-nil, um, and then obviously they've done well in this qualifying. They beat Denmark in their last game, didn't they, to, to get through, and Denmark have been a, a tough nut to crack for nearly yeah. everybody over the last five years or so. So, you have to say Scotland are probably one of the most improved teams in world football, probably over the last two or three years. Um, it will be a tough game. There's no two ways about it. Kieran Tierney would be missing, yeah. Um, so that would be a positive, I think. You know, as you say, Robertson is a top player. John McGinn's a good player. Um, they they are a good side. I think they, they'd be a tricky one to beat. I don't know if they're as good as as we are if everybody's playing well, but there's probably not a great deal in it. So. You know that that would be a tricky game. I, I would say if we were to play them. I mean, I think regardless if we do end up playing, I think it goes without saying we're hoping for, you know, uh, a tough game tomorrow. Um, extra time, penalties, couple of knocks, couple of red cards. We're not going to complain of that, are we? No, absolutely not. And
0: that's that's the thing, isn't it? But I mean, you know, if if we look at the you know, if we look at the Ukrainian t- squad as well, I mean, they've got some good players. There's Zinchenko, Man City, obviously, Yaremchuk up front, Yamalenko at, at West Ham. But, worth pointing out, 16 of their squad is based in Ukraine, so they would have played no competitive football since the start of the invasion. That's That's got to play its part. Um, but, like Steve said there, whoever wins um that match, I mean, they, they, we're just hoping that it will that we'll have that advantage because we'll have played a friendly and probably won't have played a lot of our top players and they'll have played the biggest game for months. Um, I mean, you've got to be, you, let's be honest about this. Wales have had a lucky break in that respect. And the fact that our semi-final was, was played back in March and we've had all this time to prepare for the match. Whereas they'll have a pretty quick turnaround really from one very, very important game um to another. And like Steve said, we're hoping really there's going to be a very competitive game that they're going to that's going to go the distance and that they're, they're going to be absolutely shattered by the end of it.
2: Yeah, um, not just to not to put a dampener on that at all, um, but I thought exactly the same would benefit Wrexham on the weekend when they came to play against Grimsby. Um, turned out not to be the case although it's an unbelievable game um the fact that grimsey had to play a few days earlier to secure the game against wrexham didn't uh, didn't seem to stop them um but it depends which way you look at it you're either glass half full or glass half empty you're either looking at it thinking um they're going to come into this game now having Beaten a fierce, com- fiercely competitive game, and they've come out to victors. So they are going to be so pumped, riding the crest of a wave. is going to be with them. They're going to be high as a kite coming into the game, having us just come off a kickabout friendly, well, I'd call it friendly initially game, where about four of our better players aren't going to feature at all because we don't want them picking up knocks. So it's not going to really give us a run up, if you like. Um, that they're going to get or you look at exactly the opposite which is what you've both mentioned which is they exhaust themselves they run themselves into the ground they win but at what cost can they then do it all again in a few days time can they drag their asses off the turf no matter how great they feel have they got another 95 minute performance in them when they are probably 1 to 11 not as strong as their counterparts that's another ask the question so yeah, it really depends which way it goes. Sometimes momentum is enough to just drag you over the line. Other times it comes down to um to, to just core fitness and stuff. So um I'm gonna opt to go on the positive side of it and think, like you both, that the tomorrow can be as gruelling and as horrific as it needs to be, to make sure that Wales have an easier ride of whoever they play against on the weekend.
0: Yeah, and then they'll arrive in Cardiff and they'll hear Davide One singing a Moheed, and that'll just take any remaining spirit out of <laughs> yeah. them and, and set us up for the win, I'm sure. Um, Steve, the big question is who plays? Um, there are, I would I would suggest, um, very limited options in terms of who plays at the back for Wales, but far more options in terms of who you play um, in more attacking positions and who exactly gets the nod there because there's some serious competition there who who do you think are the key players that you would like to see given that vote of confidence i mean there there are i'm just thinking a couple of the the attacking players you've got obviously bale and Ramsey. you've got dan james wilson you've got also though players like brennan johnson sober thomas even Kiefer moore who we saw the other day you know is is back in scoring form um you know, there are some really good informed players there competing for places.
1: Yeah, I think the big choices really for for Robert Page are you know, purely based on from what the last team was obviously. Is Danny Ward going to go back in gold because he's fit again instead of Hennessy? I would say he probably is. Um, and then, will Harry Wilson keep his place? Or will Kiefer Moore take it? I think they are the two issues. I don't think Brennan Johnson is going to start I think Dan James will. I don't think he's under pressure for his place.
0: Is it is there an argument that Brennan Johnson should play? Because I don't think Dan James has had the best of seasons. I think it's it's fair to say. And Brennan Johnson has been absolutely fantastic in in the in the championship. I mean, James always turns up for Wales. He he does, but Brennan Johnson is looking like such a, a serious
1: prospect right now. Is there an argument that on form he should start ahead of James? Uh possibly. I mean it it does depend on what the the other way he goes with it, I mean, does, like I said, if Kiefer Moore comes into the team, then maybe you could argue that Bale should play one side and Brennan Johnson should play the other instead of James, but if we're going to go two up top, I don't think Johnson is going to then start up front. I'm fairly sure that it would be James. I suppose then, could he play as a 10 behind the striker instead of Wilson? Maybe. Um, I do appreciate what you're saying. I actually felt in the last game that Johnson should have started instead of Wilson, but he didn't go down that route. So, Look, I think it is debatable, I, but I don't think Brennan Johnson is going to start. That's my in, instinct. I, I think he'll probably keep it similar to what he did last time. Maybe bring in Danny Board. I think Kiefer Moore will be on the bench, but I do think he'll probably come on. Uh,
0: Matt, what what do you think? How how would you go with a couple of those um, selection dilemmas? Uh, do you know, I I think... I don't see Robert
2: Page being a massive risk taker. I don't think the game necessarily lends itself to take a sort of risk. If we were huge underdogs and everyone had written us off before a ball had been kicked, then then maybe we'd try something out of the blue to see if we can catch the opposition unaware. But I think he will play it safe you know i think you'll play the players that normally play you know you'll get the you know you say danny ward goes back in if, if keifer moore well you know he's only just come back to fitness if you like, in um after having a long time out but um if he can get him a good amount of minutes whether that be off the bench or starting then then great but outside of that the brennan johnson thing absolutely deserves a place in that squad His season's been excellent but uh, i just really don't see page taking that risk and, and and throwing him in there um on a game of such magnitude i think he he's, he's got this far on 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 players who we'll trust around him and um and as the game plays out there might well be a time where we call for players like Brennan Johnson um to come off the bench and uh, try and make a difference but I, I think uh, I, I think it was you, Gitto that said that Dan James will um, possibly start, um, given the fact that he's been a mainstay over the last couple of years and uh, doesn't really let us down. His finishing aside, his performances—you you can't question Dan James's performances. He's uh, he's a hundred percent every game.
0: Yeah, I mean, God, there are some tough choices. I'd, i personally pick Dan James um, to start I, because he never lets wheels down. And I think his pace is such a weapon that I, I just think we have to, we have to get him on the, on the pitch. Um, so I, I, I'd start with James. Um, I, I agree with you, Steve. I, I go with Danny Ward in goal as well as Hennessy did against Austria um yeah i think i think he has to start i i i pretty much start with the same team that played against austria um which would mean Kiefer more starting on the bench and, and get coming on potentially late on if we if we need that different option um i mean bale's not going to last the 90 minutes you'd imagine um he didn't do oh, it against he'll
1: austria. Be play in the 90 minutes don't you worry there's no way he's going to take him off he, d- he did against austria yeah that's because he was really struggling money right at the end but i i unless he's really struggling I don't see Bale being taken off. I got to be honest.
0: Okay, well we'll see. We'll see. But the other question for me is midfield because Scotland are strong in midfield. You know they've got the likes of McGinn, McTominay. Uh, they've got the options of McGregor and Armstrong in there too. You know they, they've got really hard-working and and physical midfielders in there too, and and you know decent footballers as well. In fairness to them, um, and I don't think it's an area where we are exceptionally blessed. And I would be very tempted. To put Ampadu in there alongside Allen to you know just give us that extra solidity in there and 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 enable us to match up a bit better against them. The question then is who plays at the back because Ampadu played um, at centre back against Austria Um, and if you don't play Ampadu uh, at the back then you're pretty much left with um, Mapon. yeah, who was, <laughs> let's face it, nobody's, nobody's a big Meppam fan. Um, he's n- barely played for Bournemouth this season, um, has not been a part of Parker's plans really for, for quite some time. Um, he does have an error in him, there's no doubt about that. I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of Meppham, but I think it's worth sticking Ampadu in midfield to win that battle and taking the risk with Meppam at the back, personally, um, but that's a difficult choice. Um, I think that, Joe Roden
2: helps cover a multitude of sins there as well because he can shift Roden to cover the ground. Um, he, you know he's a very switched-on defender, so
0: he can. But I'm, I, you know, Scotland are going to really throw men forward when mm. they come to attack. They are going to, you know, they're going to start with two strikers. The wing backs are going to get forward. Midfielders going to be making late runs into the box. There's a lot to cover there, and I might just. You don't You want your, your defenders to be on top of things and, and switched on. Um, and there have been plenty of games in the past where Meppham has been switched on, in fairness to him. You know, looking back at the Euros, he had some good games there where he uh, didn't put a foot wrong. But, um, yeah, when he hasn't played at all for Bournemouth this season, really, it's, um, it's a heck of a game to throw him into. But that's you know, that's what Rob Page gets paid to do, and it's um. It's, it's a difficult one really um, I don't think we'll go for a, um, a score prediction this this week boys for two reasons, one we don't know who we're going to be playing whether it's Scotland or uh, Ukraine but more than anything I, I don't want to risk any kind of jinx on this one, this is too much this is too much to risk um, so just we're going to finish off by asking where you're going to be watching the game, um, Steve I take it you're going to be up in Cardiff are you, what's your plan for the day? Uh,
1: Train up about half eleven, I think. So some food, few pints, and then uh, yeah, I booked Monday off for either drowning sorrows or celebrating wildly and booking trips to Qatar. So um, with- <laughs> and uh, Matt, what what are your
0: plans? Are you going up to Cardiff, or are you going to be watching on the TV somewhere? No, no, not such glamorous
2: for me this time. I'm I'm going to be watching it uh, at whatever TV I can uh, I can hoist myself in front of and um. I I may have to face away from it for some period of the game. I'm sure I'll um, I just have to watch it through my fingers, I think.
0: I think I'm going to be doing the same, but I'm going to be watching it from the canton end. Um, so <laughs> it's uh, it's it's going to be a nervy, nervy game. It, the atmosphere is going to be amazing. The atmosphere around Cardiff is going to be amazing. Looking forward to seeing all the Scottish fans down. Um, the the colour and the noise of uh, an international match day in Cardiff. It's... Um, it's something fantastic anyway, but on this occasion it's gonna take it to another level. We're just hoping the Wales can get the job done and can take us to uh, our first World Cup since 1958. We've got absolutely everything crossed. Uh, we will be back with another podcast shortly and hopefully, hopefully, we'll be able to discuss uh a Wales win. But um God, it's going to be tight and it's going to be nervy whatever happens. Um, We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Thank you again for joining us. And until next time, thank you very much for listening. (laughs)